Hi, it's Chris. Before I start with New Orleans Mayor Mitch Landrew, I want to remind you, I've launched a free newsletter, and I'd love you to sign up for it at chrisreback.com. I'm happy to say the newsletter is getting excellent feedback. It delivers lots of great material that doesn't fit into the podcast, bonus insights, backstories, show notes, and more. I do a lot of research for these conversations. The newsletter brings you behind the podcast. In this week's edition, you'll get bonus insights from Mayor Landrew on the question, is it time for a mayor to be president? You'll want to read his answer. And once again, signing up for the free newsletter puts you in the running for a free gift, a copy of Mayor Landrew's outstanding book, In the Shadow of Statues, A White Southerner Confronts History. Just go to chrisreback.com to sign up for my new newsletter and a chance for the book. That's chrisreback.com. Thanks, and now let's get to the podcast. I'm Chris Reback. This is a special Political Wire Conversations. Usually we drop these conversations on Friday mornings. You know, something to look forward to since the workweek excitement is about to end. But we're posting this one on Monday, May 7th, because of my guest. It's his last day as mayor of New Orleans. Did you see the speech? It was about a year ago. New Orleans Mayor Mitch Landrew stood up and explained to his city and the nation, really, why he removed four statues that honored the Confederacy, Robert E. Lee, Jefferson Davis, PGT Beauregard, and the Crescent City White League. In that speech, Landrew took on race, inequality, and history. He asked why there are are no no slave ship ship monuments, monuments, no prominent markers on public land to remember the lynchings or the slave blocks, nothing to remember this long chapter of our lives of pain, of sacrifice, of shame, all of it happening on the soil of New Orleans. So for those self-appointed defenders of history and the monuments, they are eerily silent on what amounts to historical malfeasance, a lie by omission. There is a difference, you see, between remembrance of history and the reverence of it. It was a powerful 20 minutes, and if you haven't watched it, you should. For a mayor who has so much else to be proud of, his city, New Orleans, has rebuilt itself incredibly since Katrina, and his family. His father, Moon Landrew, was New Orleans mayor and HUD secretary under Jimmy Carter. His sister was a U.S. senator. The speech brought Landrew into the national conversation at a time when there was a lot of yelling and not much talking. Landrew has written a book about the experience and race in America. It's called In the Shadow of Statues, A White Southerner Confronts History, and it's excellent. I spoke with Mayor Landrew four days ago, before term limits meant he would give way to a new mayor today. He was gracious with his time and funny and thoughtful with his words. I asked him about the speech, the book, New Orleans, and, of course, the question everyone has about him. What about that running for president thing? But before I begin the conversation with Mayor Landrew, I want to remind you about our show's sponsor, The Cook Political Report. The special elections roll on, so what's the latest with the 2018 midterm election map and that blue wave? What about other issues like tariffs, immigration, and guns? People who want to stay ahead of the curve turn to The Cook Political Report, and with good reason. For 30 years, the report has nailed the nation's most important election outcomes and political trends. People who make it their business to know politics make it their business to subscribe to the Cook Political Report. Just go to cookpolitical.com to sign up. That's cookpolitical.com. Okay, that's it. Here's my conversation with Mayor Landrew. 
Mayor Landrew, thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate your time. It's great to be with you. Thank you for having me. You won your first term in 2010, Mayor, with 66% of the vote. You took 365 of the city's 366 precincts. You won your second term with nearly 64%, and by all accounts, you still seem to be extremely popular. You sure you believe in term limits? Uh, <laughs> well, you know, after you have served for eight years as the mayor of a major American city, you come to realize that term limits are really good. It, was a, it has been a great blessing. To, to be the mayor, but the responsibility is huge. Uh, but it's it's time to turn the reins over to the next generation of leaders. Terrific. Let's uh, let's get right into it. Let's talk about uh, your book um, and your speech and the speech that captured um, so many of us when you made it. I guess about a year ago, you, you took on perhaps the single most divisive issue in our country, race, and you did it around the path that has become uh, almost the physical representation of our divide, statues. Why'd you do it? Well, you know, as I, as I wrote in the book, which was not just about the statues, but about race in America and how I came to um, live through it, I have come to the conclusion that we're not doing well speaking about this issue towards each other, and it's holding us back that we really never have dealt with it appropriately. And uh, at least in New Orleans and in the Deep South, we confront this. It's certainly not just an issue in the South, but all over the country. And as we rebuilt the city of New Orleans after it was totally devastated from Katrina, we were really forced to think about how we were going to build the city back, not just the way it was, because Katrina and Rita didn't cause all of our problems, but the way it should have been if we would have gotten it right the first time. And when you ask the question that way, it forces you to go back and rethink decisions that have been made in the past that were helpful and those that were hurtful. Uh, and of course, those statues in New Orleans, which is one of the great multicultural cities that values its diversity and has become, if not the soul of the country, very close to it. Those statues, you know, uh, stuck out like so with thumbs because they were not only symbols of uh, hatred, but they were put up purposefully to send a message. So there was really no way for the city of New Orleans to prepare itself for the next 300 years without dealing with that issue. And of course, those statues are just pieces of, of, of stone, but what they actually represent. And so the speech was an effort to invite the people in New Orleans into a conversation about how we move past where we've been to where we all think we need to go. Would that opportunity have existed in your mind without Katrina? Well, the opportunity is with us every day. It's just a question of whether or not we decide to do it. And unfortunately, um, the United States of America really hasn't. We don't really talk to each other about race. We talk past each other. And what I've learned is you can't go around this. You can't go over it. You can't go under it. You really have to go through it. And in New Orleans, we actually started that. In 2014, we began an effort called the Welcome Table to bring different you know, people of races, creeds, and colors into very small settings where they could get to know each other and talk to each other to foster a better understanding. And it was out of that effort that about 600 people participated in that we began to think about bigger things like the monuments themselves. 
Now, as you said, the book is not about the statues per se, and it is also about race, but it's also about your own personal journey, um, how you grew up, the friends you had, the things you saw or were done or said to you, like the threats against your life at age 13, visiting Auschwitz in 1979, I think it was. Why was yep, telling your personal, correct. yeah, which, which is, and I'd love you to talk about that as well. Why was that telling your personal journey integral to writing this book? Well, some, because some people thought that, you know, I got to be mayor and I just thought, oh, gee, let's take these statues down. That would be, you know, an interesting issue to talk about as it relates to race. And what I was trying to point out to them was that there's not a second in my life from the moment of conception through today where at some point I personally have not had to deal with the issue. And, of course, that meant everybody else had to deal with it as well. So that's why the book was really about race in America and how we deal with it or how we don't deal with it how we remember our history, how we exclude other parts of our history, how we revere certain parts of it and completely forget about the rest. In other words, I was condemned pretty roundly by, you know, some people that purported to be members of historic, quote unquote, historical societies that said I was taking away history. And I reminded them that the city of New Orleans is actually 300 years old. The Civil War was only four years. And these monuments took up uh, all of our time and all of our space, and that they were guilty of historical malfeasance by not remembering the other 296 years and all of the um, creativity that has gone on and the diversity that's gone on since then. And I pointed out, I think forcefully and correctly, that until recently, there really were no monuments uh, or any remembrances of some of the carnages of slavery. Uh, and just the other day, Brian Stevenson and his team opened up a compelling uh, new monument in Birmingham that yeah, commemorates yeah. the lynchings. But we've never really remembered that appropriately either. So if we're going to talk about it uh, in, in a historical way, we have to talk about all of our history and not just some of it, and certainly not a false version of it. You know, I was surprised and taken by you. You wrote that you had to relearn history yourself. And I imagine on some level that that journey must have surprised you. I mean, your family is part of New Orleans and Louisiana history. You spent most of your life there. Um, I think you, you would have even possibly viewed yourself at the least as an amateur New Orleans historian. How, how do you realize you needed to relearn history? And, and did that do anything? What did that do to your sense of self? Well, <laughs> that's a very good question, because all of this requires intense self-reflection and discernment. You know, one of the things I say is that I walk by those monuments every day, and I never thought much about them. Uh, until my friend Wenton Marcellus, who people in the world will know is the great jazz trumpet player, but he happens just to be a, a boyhood friend who was helping me curate the 300th anniversary, said to me, have you ever thought about those monuments? Do you know why they're there? Do you know who put them up? Do Have you ever thought about them from my perspective? As a friend would challenge another friend. And, you know, when he started asking me those questions, I have to admit, you know, I never really thought about them from that perspective. And when I did and started doing extensive research, what I found was that those things weren't put up by accident. They were put up well after the Civil War ended by people with a specific intent to send a message to African Americans that even though the Confederacy lost the war, that the people who were supported the Confederacy were still in charge. You know, and I just thought it was really important to talk, start talking about simply what actually occurred, because it seems to me that people have a difficult time saying the very simplest things that are clearly true, which is this. The Confederacy fought to destroy the United States of America, not to unite it. They fought the war in an effort to preserve slavery, and that is not right, and it was on the wrong side of history. 
and those statues were put up to revere the people who actually fought that war to destroy the country. And I just thought that it was, it was important to set out the distinction between remembering what people have done throughout our history and then revering them. They're two very different things, and they occupy different places, and they should be remembered in different places as well. Yeah, you make that really clear through the book and, and through the speech. So you mentioned uh, your friend, uh, Wynton Marcellus, and you mentioned him in the speech as well. And I, I watched that speech again to prepare for this conversation, and there, there are so many powerful parts to it. Um, one is where you said another, another friend, friend asked, asked me, me to consider these four monuments from the perspective of an African-American mother or father trying to explain to their fifth grade daughter why Robert E. Lee sat atop of our city. Can you do it? Can you do it? Can you look into the eyes of this young girl and convince her that Robert E. Lee is there to encourage her? And when you asked, can you do it, you pointed to the audience. Who were you pointing to? I was pointing at everybody. You know, when you put, here's the thing, you know, when you walk in another person's shoes, you begin to see things more clearly. We can have all these theoretical arguments about who put them up, when they were put up, what they were put there for, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, when all the theory goes away, if my job as the mayor was to prepare this city for its next 300 years, who was I preparing it for? I was preparing it for the people who live here, particularly the children. And, and I'm every day talking about creating a better future for them by encouraging them to go to school, go to college, help participate in building the new rocket to Mars that we're building in New Orleans, encouraging these kids to go to college. And then if you, but if you take that child and she's walking past that monument, she says, why is that person up there still? If his whole life was designed to either keep me in change or to send a message to me that I'm less than, how then are we living with integrity and preparing that? And so I wanted to personify this. I wanted, to, I wanted everybody to put themselves in the shoes of a parent explaining to the child why it was okay for that guy to be there. And I think that that just kind of put people back on their heels and said, well, good. When you say it from that perspective, it gets pretty simple about what we ought to do. It clears away all the cobwebs, uh, and it gives us a pretty, pretty clear direction of which way we should go. Were you nervous to give the speech at all? Was it was it different? It must have been different than I mean, you give you know you must give you know dozens of speeches every day, at least a couple every day, and that had to be different. Um, were, were you anxious at all? Uh, I I wasn't actually. I had I had spent a lot of time thinking about it. Uh, I remember I started working on this for three and a half years before we took the monuments down, and of course a lot of these issues were things that had been um, part of my life. What I was was certain and um, that I wanted to give the speech. I gave it for a specific purpose, which was to lay down a historical record that could be laid right next to a speech that a fellow named Charles Fenner gave in 1890. So that when people saw the historical record, I clearly explained uh, why I did what I did and why it was necessary. And so I was uh, I felt very good about it. Um, it was it was a uh, just a very direct talk to folks about the truth as I saw it. As a matter of fact, the name of the speech, speech is truth. Uh, and in this day and age, you know, talking, speaking the truth and, and relying on real facts and real history, I thought was um, needed in order for the history books to record the actions of a mayor that is part of what I would consider to be a continuous government that 300, that's 300 years old so that the records reflect why we did what we did. And I know that you're concern your your focus is not just on racism and issues in new orleans obviously that's the 
central while you're the mayor of New Orleans, but you've thought about and you write about race uh, in America broadly, and you've been quite public, uh, and and you write about President Trump in in your book, Um, and you you associate, I believe, you correct me if I have it wrong, but a a rise in white supremacy in this country with President Trump. Um, Why do you say that, And and what would you say to him? I don't know if you've had a chance to talk with him. Have you ever well, ta- have you ever spoken I, with him? Yeah, I have. Um, not not in long conversations, but I wouldn't couch it that way. And I don't mean to correct you, but yeah, I do want please. to put this in perfect context. Thank you. I rarely mention President Trump in the book. I do a couple of times, not as the cause of any of this, but a participant in uh, what I consider to be a very dangerous thing that's going on that he has either unwittingly participated in, encouraged, or has refused to disavow, um, although recently he has done that. And that is, that is the cause of white supremacy. There's no question that all across the world that this notion that whites are uh, superior in intellectually and genetically to other people has led us uh, into very dangerous territory, or that any group of people are superior to others. We've had apartheid in South Africa, We had tremendous atrocities uh, in Germany. In the United States of America, we have had slavery. All of those things are born out of a sense of racial hatred uh, or superiority that people have over others. And there has been a rise recently across the world, which has also manifested itself in the United States. And when that happens, which is why I tell the story of Auschwitz, there's only one thing that people can do is stand up and say, look, it doesn't matter whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. It doesn't matter whether you're conservative or a moderate or a liberal. There's a lot of room for us to disagree on a lot of things, but not on the cause of whether one group of human beings is superior to another and that we have a right to oppress them. Slavery was an awful thing for this country. We're still paying dividends for it. When, when, when that raises its head in the, in the face of or the mouth of David Duke or anybody else, that could potentially result in the kind of things that happened in Charlottesville. Everybody's got to stand up and say that's out of bounds. And, you know, I called the president to task briefly in the book for false equivocation between protesters or acting like he didn't know who David Duke was and not just specifically saying, do not vote for me if you believe what white supremacists believe. I wanted to ask you about religion as well. I mean, you went to Jesuit high school, Catholic University. You got your JD from Loyola University Law School in New Orleans. I mean, how has religion? I mean, it's obviously, it, it, I'm assuming based on that, you uh, please again correct me if I have it wrong. Uh-huh. That that religion, you know, surely plays an influential part of your life, is my belief from from your background. Um, well, you, you you correctly point out that I was tra- <laughs> I was raised. By in, in in the Catholic faith, and I am I am a Catholic by choice as well. And I was uh, I went to Jesuit high school and Catholic University, Loyola Law School. You know, I readily admit that that I'm I'm not very good at it, and that I make a lot of mistakes in my life. So I'm not trying to preach to anybody about anything. But but when you are raised that way, you you have a a pretty good um, reservoir of direction that you try to take in your life, and you try to rely on your faith to help keep you steady. Uh, in good times and in bad. Understood. Let any of us, how we're living our own lives, be the first to cast any stones. That's uh, that's for sure. Most of us just trying to do the best we can. 
to close out, um, and, and I, you, you understand, I just want to be helpful here. Um, you may not have noticed, uh, Mayor, and, and I have no other motivations. Um, the last few Democratic presidents, Clinton, Carter, LBJ, not Obama, of course, came from the South. I, I personally find that very interesting. And given that I'm talking with you today, I'm not asking you anything about yourself. You know that. I'm just wondering if you find that interesting <laughs> also. I <laughs> Well, I, well, of course it is, you know, and it's a noticeable thing. I think all of those guys did a great job. <laughs> That's the shortest answer I've ever heard you give. <laughs> how, how, how do you feel about uh, people asking you uh, about that? Is it about whether you may run? And I know, you know, is it, is that something nice? I mean, it's meant in a positive yeah, way. It's very, it's very it's very flattering. There's no question about it. You know, you, it would be a disingenuous and a lie to say it's not. I mean, I've been serving in office now for 30 years. I, I served as a legislator for 16, lieutenant governor in six, and the mayor for eight. And so you want to you want to finish with people thinking well about the work that you did and the sacrifice that you made. And so, of course, uh, you know, it makes you feel good. Secondly, it makes me really proud because. When people say that, they're not just saying a good thing about me. They're saying a good thing about the people of the city of New Orleans, who I think did miraculous work after Katrina to stand our city back up. But, you know, it, this is a, it, it gets to be a horse race and people surmise about what other people are going to do. Uh, and that's always a very interesting conversation. But I have really been focused on getting the city through uh, the eight years of recovering, rebuilding, and then finally just celebrating our 300th anniversary. Uh, and you know what the future holds? Who knows? Uh, I I I think that's un, unlikely. It's not impossible. Um, but you know what the heck? I mean, I, I don't I don't know what the future holds for me. But my sense is that it's that it's unlikely that that's going to happen. Well, well, there's one day in the near future that that you do know about. Um, and to close out, I, I may publish this conversation on May seventh. Um, what will that day be like for you? You know, it's it's interesting because as we tape this, we're a couple of days, you know, away from it, and I'm I'm cleaning out my office as we speak, and I'm also working full time, so I don't really have a lot of time to focus. But my guess is that at twelve o'clock on the seventh, there it's going to be very bittersweet. There'll be a huge sense of relief that the responsibility that's so heavy that you have to bear by yourself sometimes has been lifted from your shoulders. But there'll also be some sadness you know, that you're not at the helm anymore or in a position of, as a mayor, of pretty extreme power, you know, to pull people together and to lift other people's lives up. And so uh, I don't know what I'm going to do in my future, but it will do something, uh, hopefully, God willing, that helps uh, other people, whether it's in my private life or uh, in a public life. And that's the, been the most gratifying part of serving the public for 30 years. Mayor, thank you. Thank you for your time. And obviously, thank you for your service as well. Well, great. Thank you so much for interviewing me. I enjoyed it. That was my conversation with Mayor Landrew. I wish him luck on whatever he decides to do next. Want more from the mayor? A reminder to sign up for my new free newsletter at chrisreback.com. It has bonus insights from him on the question, is it time for a mayor to be president? Plus, sign up and you'll get a chance to win a copy of his book. My thanks to Mayor Landrew for the conversation and you for listening. I'm Chris Reback. I'll talk with you soon.